It's Midday Magazine for Thursday, August 17th. I'm Shelby Herbert. Housing is a big concern for communities across southeast Alaska. In Petersburg, the results of a community survey indicate that more than 300 houses may need to be built or renovated in the next decade. Petersburg's Housing Task Force held a meeting about those surveys' results last night. KFSK's Thomas Copeland has more. Petersburg has a new fourth grade teacher this fall, Sharon Paulson. She moved to town this summer. The floor of her home is strewn with musical instruments played proudly by five-year-old Glenn. In the middle, a steel drum marked with the first seven letters of the alphabet. I'm sure the neighbours are thrilled. I don't think we'll be that in the way, see? Paulson signed her contract in March. She broke the news to her husband and her son and started house hunting in Petersburg. We looked on Zillow, which was laughable, and someone said, check on Facebook. And I saw that there really wasn't very much there. I looked with the realty companies, both of them. The administrators were putting the word out for people. We had a list of Airbnbs to ask if maybe they would rent to us. After nearly two months of searching, Paulson spotted a classified ad in the local paper. That was the last kind of hope that I had. It really was like, if we can't find housing, we can't make this move. So when we finally did find a house and our offer was accepted, I could visibly see the stress fall off of my husband's face. Stories like hers are common around Petersburg. So last fall, the Borough Assembly set up a housing task force. Assemblymember Dave Kensinger is the chair. I think we need to figure out a way to start building more housing. It's pretty simple. If we don't deal with it, we won't have as many people in town. But Kensinger says that's the easy bit. The hard part, what type of housing and how much of it. To answer that, the task force launched a community housing needs survey. It ran for a month in the summer and it was all overseen by Anchorage-based Agnew Beck Consulting. Now, the results are in. Here's Katie Skovic, Senior Manager at Agnew Beck. We had 366 responses to the Community Housing Survey in Petersburg, which is awesome. That's about 10% of the population and a really great rate for this kind of survey. The survey was 10 pages long with 39 questions. But here are some of the headline results. A quarter of respondents aren't happy with their housing. And most of those who aren't happy are under 45, working and still renting. Most of them want to move into family homes, but apartments and duplexes are popular too. 80% of all respondents want to see more land with utilities opened up for housing. And the survey shows that a lack of skilled labour and the cost of repair is holding people back from renovating their homes. But Skovic says that even those who don't fall under any of those categories still care about this issue. The majority of Petersburg residents are satisfied with their own housing, but also the majority of residents say that housing is a community issue. And so to see both of those things at the same time is encouraging. Now, the team at Agnewbeck have been sifting through all that data to calculate what housing they think Petersburg needs. According to our housing need forecasts, over the next 10 years, there's a need for roughly 316 housing units in Petersburg. We're really looking at about six new units a year and 18 rehab or renovation units each year for the next 10 years. So once the consultants submit their final report at the end of September, Dave Kensinger says there's no time to waste. 
the time to done something was 10 years ago. And if we want to keep a vibrant community and we just don't want a community of a bunch of retirees, we need to address the housing problem now, not next year. But that's easier said than done. Between land, labour and logistics, and many folks in Petersburg will have big concerns that need to be addressed first. Back at the Paulson family home, Sharon has shifted her focus to a different challenge altogether. The first day of school. I'm very excited, you know, of course nervous. I rarely ever sleep the day before students come to school. Do you have a lesson plan for day one? Oh, not yet. <laughs> um, I don't yet, but I will. Perhaps she can whip up a quick housing plan while she's at it. In Petersburg, I'm Thomas Copeland. City grants meant to help Juno residents build mother-in-law apartments could soon double in size. For the last seven years, the city has offered $6,000 grants to help Juno residents build accessory dwelling units. Those are new housing units built on lots that already have a house. But city officials say $6,000 isn't enough to make a significant dent in today's construction costs. Now, the Juno Assembly is considering updating the program, increasing the size of the grants to $13,500. Some of the original rules would still apply. For example, recipients would have to be Juno residents, and they'd have to wait three years before they could list it as a short-term rental. At a meeting early this month, Assembly Committee members sent the $13,500 grant program to the full Assembly for final approval. Other changes to the program could come in the future. City leaders are considering adding a second tier with even larger grants of up to $50,000. Those grants would also be subject to more rules. Grantees couldn't rent the units as short-term rentals for 10 years, and they'd have to be rent-controlled. But city manager Rory Watts said it would be hard for city city staff to monitor that. And he said staff worried that property owners would just rent affordable units to friends and families. We couldn't figure out a way to ensure that that kind of program uh, wouldn't be misused. Uh, Much higher dollar amount and we had concerns that... uh, if uh, somebody added a unit with an affordability component uh, that they might not make that available to the public or there might be some kind of an inside deal. The Assembly Committee of the Whole will continue to discuss a potential second tier. The $6,000 grant program expired in June. The city has issued 41 of those grants since 2016. It sounds like an Alaska transportation riddle, but how does a salmon cross a road? The answer will soon be with financial help from the Federal Transportation Department. USDOT is sending Alaska more than $44 million to install fish-friendly culverts and other means to get migrating salmon to the other side of roads. Alaska Public Media's Liz Ruskin reports on the first round of grants from a new federal program. U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg admits he's a fish out of water when it comes to talking about fish migration. When you take on a job like Secretary of Transportation, there are some things you know you're going to be working on, planes, trains, and automobiles. And there are other things like anadromous fish passage that you do not realize will be on your plate. Anadromous fish, that's salmon and other species that live in the sea as adults and travel up freshwater streams to spawn. 
Roads that cross fish streams are supposed to be designed for fish migration, but Alaska still has lots of culverts that fish can't get through. Sometimes the problem is water volume, with the culvert acting as a pinch point. Some culverts are perched too high above the stream bed. The DOT has a new program to fund better fish crossings. Among the first grants are nine projects across Alaska, from Cloak to King Salmon. The largest grant is $20 million to the state of Alaska to improve a dozen stream crossings along the park's highway. The state says when complete, that project will open 50 miles of anadromous streams, leading to hundreds of acres of lake habitat. Secretary Buttigieg says the program benefits fishing communities. This is not just a a question of of conservation or preservation. It's also a question of economic security and food security. The program was funded through the bipartisan infrastructure law. Nationwide, it supplies grants of $200 million a year. Reporting from Anchorage, I'm Liz Ruskin. From oyster to kelp farmers... Mariculture industry members gathered to share their experiences as part of a five-year, $49 million project to develop mariculture in Alaska. The Kenai Peninsula Economic Development District held a mariculture meetup last Wednesday to connect industry members and to gather information on how to sustainably develop Alaska's mariculture industry. The meetup had multiple speakers and breakout sessions for people to learn about the challenges of the industry and to discuss potential solutions. Marie Bader, a former oyster farmer with decades of experience, provided a historical perspective for mariculture in the peninsula and highlighted its potential in the state. Commercial fishing has dominated, but we can grow stuff right in our backyards of water gardens and commercial gardens for the benefit of the whole world. The event is part of a five-year project run by four economic development districts in the state and the Alaska Mariculture Alliance. Last year, the project received a $49 million Build Back Better grant to sustainably develop the state's mariculture industry. The Alaska Mariculture Alliance defines mariculture as the production of aquatic shellfish like oysters and plants like kelp, but not finned animals. Alaska State Representative Sarah Vance also attended the meetup to learn more about the mariculture industry and to get feedback from attendees on a new bill related to reducing regulation for mariculture leases. I'm here to find out if this bill is something that will help the industry get their ideas on what it should be and um, craft the piece of legislation to help promote their industry and make the business easier for them to do what they do best and that's farming. Kenai Peninsula Economic Development District Special Projects Manager Cassidy Cameron said the meetup identified some challenges in the industry, such as bottlenecks in testing oysters to see if they're safe to eat. The meetup, combined with continued collaboration with the Mariculture Alliance, gave the districts vital information for future actions. We're trying to make sure that we are approaching and strategizing in a really intentional way and thoughtful manner and um, acknowledge all the stakeholders uh, and partners that are involved and make sure that we can develop this industry that can go beyond the scope of the project.
In a visit to Homer on Thursday, U.S. Senator Lisa Murkowski also spoke about the Keep America's Waterfronts Working Act, a bill that could open up research and growth of the mariculture industry. We're working to incorporate additional avenues to help those who are in these very entrepreneurial areas, helping with research through the programmatic funding, which I think is also going to be important, making grant opportunities available. Moving forward, the project will continue to support mariculture business owners through providing industry-specific loans, equipment recommendations, and doing market research to expand where products can be sold. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has released a sweeping five-year plan to prioritize and promote the country's commercial fishing industry. Kirsten Dobrith reports from Kodiak. NOAA Fisheries announced its National Seafood Strategy on Wednesday. The agency said in a press release that the plan will outline the direction of the country's seafood sector. It's the first time NOAA has released an overall strategy aimed at addressing industry needs. The agency says it will complement other federal policies that are already in place. The new plan outlines broad priorities like investments in sustainability, research, and aquaculture, and calls for making the country's seafood sector more competitive, both within the U.S. and on the global market. It also outlines current challenges to the nation's seafood industry, like labor shortages and lingering market disruptions caused by the pandemic. Climate change is also identified as a main present and future challenge to fishing communities. The National Seafood Strategy is vague on costs and timelines and doesn't provide any regional insights into how the strategy might be implemented in places like Alaska. But it comes as processors are blaming competitive market conditions for lower payouts to fishermen across several of the state's fisheries and a string of cuts to catch limits and all-out closures. NOAA estimates the current dockside value of the country's seafood sector at $6.3 billion. As of 2020, Alaska accounted for more than half of all commercial landings and about a third of the industry's overall value. In Kodiak, I'm Kirsten Dobrath. Two top-level officials at Juno's Bartlett Regional Hospital have resigned. Chief Executive. Chief Executive Officer David Keith and fi- Chief Financial Officer Sam Muse. The resignations come a week after a hospital board member said staffing and management problems were leaving behavioral health patients without adequate care. The Juno Empire reports that at a hospital board meeting last week, Keith defended his management practices and said limits on the use of temporary employees were overly restrictive. Hospital Board President Kenny Solomon Gross didn't share reasons for Keith's departure in an email to employees sent Tuesday, but he said in the last six months, the the board has, quote, tasked leadership with making tough decisions to address the hospital's finances, end quote. Bartlett CFO Sam Muse is also resigning. He became the hospital's controller in August 2022, was named interim CFO that November, and became CFO in January. In a statement, he said he was leaving for personal reasons. The resignations are the latest in a string of leadership changes at the hospital over the last few years. In January 2022, the hospital's CFO and COO both left. In September 2021, CEO Rose Lawhorn resigned 
and then was fired by the board after having an inappropriate relationship with a subordinate. She'd been on the job for six months. Chief Behavioral Health Officer Bradley Grigg resigned the same week. Almost a year later, he was arrested for allegedly stealing more than $100,000 from the hospital. For KFSK, I'm Shelby Herbert.